You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution and co-host of this episode. Researchers have argued that at least a quarter of the population in Africa has internet access with some perspective that three quarters of residents will be connected by the year 2030. Mobile access is a large contributor of this access and it's also generated a significant portion of jobs. From what I've read about 1.7 million, roughly contributing 8.5% to the economy. In some critical areas, Africa has leapfrogged the US and other countries in areas that include mobile banking and health. Kenya was one of the first African countries to lead in mobile payments with more than 84% of the country now using it to make everyday payments. And to be exact, the country had 55.1 billion in mobile transactions in 2021, up nearly 20% from 2020. These numbers, despite a mere quarter of the Kenya population with internet access, are amazing and interesting and something we need to talk about. And this is happening all over the continent. And not just in mobile banking, my friends who are listening today, mobile health is another critical quality of life factor for many African countries. mHealth supports individuals and families. They have during the pandemic, before the pandemic, and will continue to do so, particularly for medically vulnerable citizens in the continent. But despite these advances, you all know who are listening to my voice today at Digital Divide Exist in Africa. And I'm very excited about this episode because we're gonna actually not just talk about technology adoption and use on the continent, but we're also going to talk about this digital divide. And if we get some time, we're gonna chat a little bit about this infrastructure that Africa is building to support all these applications and who's supporting them in making these realities happen. My guests today come with a plethora of knowledge on these issues and I'm really excited because we are a global podcast. We're joined today by Yolanda Ma, who is the head of digital policy and Global Partnerships for the United Nations Development Program. Jane Munga, who's a fellow at the Africa Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Adasu Mashatu, who is a non-resident fellow in Global Economy and Development at the Brookings Institution. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Nicole, thank you for having me. Thanks for having me, glad to be here. Yeah, let's jump right into this. Adesu, I'm gonna start with you, not because you're a Brookings scholar, but I wanna talk to you about this recently published op-ed that you had in Africa Business Magazine regarding the growth of digital platforms on the continent. Share with us how these platforms are advancing digital technologies and use on the continent in areas like financial services, agriculture, retail, and perhaps areas I didn't even mention. Thank you, Nicole. As you indicated, there's a fast rise in internet access in Africa today, and uh, this is fueling a rapid rise in the tech sector in the continent as well. 
So in the first half of 2022, actually, African tech startups managed to attract 3.5 billion US dollars in venture capital investments. This is a doubling of capital inflows compared to the same period in 2021. And uh, it shows that Africa is indeed becoming an important investment destination. So uh, this kind of level of venture capital inflow to Africa is relatively new, but uh, for many years, many African countries have actually have housed the booming tech startup ecosystem. Examples are Kenya, Ghana, and Nigeria, which had uh, a flourishing startup space, especially in sectors such as e-commerce, financial services, payment, and agriculture. And uh, these digital enterprises are bridging some of the structural divisions in Africa. For example, uh, mobile money platforms such as M-Pesa have helped bridge the continent's large rural-urban divide. Mobile money systems provide a safe and affordable means for money transfer that enabled you know, millions of Africans who live in urban areas to send money to family members who live in rural areas. Also, uh, digital businesses are helping to bridge the divide between the formal and informal economy. Africa has millions of small informal businesses. Uh, these businesses normally struggle to get loans from banks. They are not formal, so that creates a problem. Now, mobile money platforms such as Mshuari in Kenya, but also there are others in other African countries, branch in Nigeria is a good example. These platforms offer short-term microloans for millions of businesses around the continent. There are also businesses like Link in Kenya that are helping integrate informal enterprises with the rest of the economy. They create a platform, for example, in the case of Link, they create a platform that allows users to connect with thousands of artisans and technical workers whom they can hire, communicate with, and rate as well. This is also um, prevalent in agriculture, e-commerce businesses such as Twiga are serving as demand aggregators in agriculture, you know, buying fresh products from farmers and then distributing it to urban consumers. Finally, digital technologies are also helping reach the poor who are traditionally considered to be unmarketable because of their low purchasing power. So transportation is a good example here, where dozens of ride-hailing businesses in Africa are doing what Uber and Lyft are doing in other parts of the world. And a very good example also in this area is what is called Uber for tractors. There are digital platforms that use this concept, such as Hello Tractor in Nigeria, that have enabled actually thousands of African smallholder farmers to access affordable tractors for rent. So in sum, I can say that technology firms, in particular digital platforms, are opening up vast business opportunities in Africa by reaching out previously neglected parts of the market. That is so interesting because I think a lot of folks did not know how technology is being catalyzed at Asu for these various verticals, which Delanda, it, it brings me to you because we had the opportunity to sit on a panel together. And I know that you've heard of these use cases as well, but are there other cases, particularly those improving quality of life in Africa that we should be aware of? Thanks, Nico. I just came back from the Internet Governance Forum in Ethiopia. I was there last for the entire week. And so it was really amazing firsthand experience of some of the innovations happening on the ground in the continent, but also in the country specifically. And it was when Adios was talking about the transportation, because personally, I was there as a foreigner. I wasn't sure how the local taxis are working. But then my local friends were telling me there is an app called Ride in Ethiopia, and I was able to use that as an Uber equivalent. And as a outcomer, I'm, I'm able to use that and really navigate very easily. And that's, of course, that's actually creating the local economy and boosting 
the local drivers and giving them more additional income, even though some of them don't even speak English. With the app, it's workable. So that's my first-hand experience. Just wanted to share as an anecdote. And then more broadly, I think there are a couple of things I wanted to mention beyond those like use cases. One is that we really see the that all these different new innovations are bringing inclusion for the people, and I think we're going to talk more about that later. But it's really bringing more opportunities for both business and the people in Africa, and it's really giving them the new opportunities that some of them never had access to before. For example, when COVID hit. We partnered with a local e-commerce company called Jumia in Uganda, where lots of the vendors, as you know, when COVID hit, they basically lost their business because they can no longer go on the street and sell their business. So what we did was working with an e-commerce company and trying to bring the women, the youth, and those who are actually lost their business because of the lockdown and bringing them onto the e-commerce platforms. And that really gives them the new opportunity to do their business again. So that's the kind of use cases we have been seeing in many other countries as well throughout COVID. And now, as the countries are coming out of COVID, the kind of innovations, the kind of inclusion we are seeing is really encouraging. Yes, it really sounds like that, Yolanda, too. And I'm excited to hear more too about what women are doing in Africa. Jane, you know, we're talking about digital transformation here, and I know your research focuses on that as well as the divide, which we'll talk about in a moment. When you hear what you're hearing in terms of people being transformed by the technological access, what are we missing? Is there Are there other things happening in Africa that we should be aware of when it comes to adoption and use? The digital economy and the transformation that is happening in Africa is a sector-wide transformation that's happening. And sometimes it becomes hard to... And, to mention or encapsulate all these different transformations that are happening. I also want to mention something that is happening on the government side. This is uh, eGov. We are seeing a lot of transformation, Nicole, that is happening on governments digitizing themselves. I worked in Kenya, I come from, also come from Kenya, and we began to see when governments adopt digitization, a lot of uh, societal transformations happen. First, there's increase of efficiency and transparency of how this government service is being adopted. And also you're able to reach more masses at this and also sometimes from the comfort of your own home or from your own device. So, for example, a lot of uh, services based in e-health or even something as simple as a digital ID or a passport is something that a lot of citizens now can access from the comfort of digital devices. We're also beginning to see a lot of health services and education services that are being offered by government also coming on the digital platforms. And this is speeding up how a lot of uh, citizens are able to engage with the government. Also, what was keen to observe is during the COVID pandemic, because of uh, the economic hard times, there were governments that were able also to give cash transfers. For example, in Kenya, the cash transfers were being received through mobile money. As Lishitu mentioned, that yeah, mobile money is something that has literally transformed financial inclusion in Africa. So those who are affected were given cash transfers right from their mobile devices, and it was able to immediately uh, be something that they can access and help them during these tough times. No, I appreciate that too. And I think what we're hearing is, that this global transformation is probably more relevant and, you know, happening in Africa in ways that we can't even, I love the way you say it, right, Jane, we can't even begin to 
to raise it to the surface, the various sectors that are being affected. The same token, and Yolanda, I'll go back to you because you just put out a report on global digital transformation. I mean, is this something that's happening across the globe so people really understand that Africa is in many respects, and again, before we get to that digital divide, following suit with other countries that are really looking and continents, really, who are really looking at ways in which technology can be transformative. That's actually a big trend we have been seeing since COVID. Well, of course, many countries are doing their digital transformation before COVID times. The e-governance thing is not new, new. However, it's really accelerated by the entire pandemic. And the report you're referring to, that's actually one of our response to this trend that's happening, and the report is called Inclusive by Design, Accelerating Digital Transformation for the Global Goals. And the reason we really put inclusion at the center of it is because we start seeing many countries building their digital transformation effort, building their digital infrastructure. However, it's important to be aware that the digital transformation may not be a neutral effort. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be inclusive so that the people who are even not connected by now, they could benefit from it in the near future. The report we issued is really trying to give some guidance to countries and to governments if they want to do digital transformation in an inclusive manner, what can they do? So it covers things, practices like how they can set up their institutions, what kind of uh, unit or agencies they need to set within the government to for them to be able to do the cross-ministry coordination across the country. How can they actually build the digital infrastructure in a way that's um, actually effective and efficient? How can they actually train the people? How can they improve the digital literacy in the country, not just for government officials, but also for the people? So that's the different things we touch on. And of course, we we actually hope that that could be picked up by many African countries and want to share one example that actually followed some of the practice in the report. And that's actually one of the case studies in the policy brief that is in Mauritania, where we basically worked with the government to set up a digital agency. That's one of the practice I mentioned before on how they can set up their agency and then help them set up their priorities, identify the gaps and the priorities in the country for this transformation. And one of the areas after we did the assessment, we realized one of the key foundational areas is actually the digital infrastructure or the digital ID system. So as a result of the assessment and our guidance, the country started working on digital ID system now. So that's one kind of a transformation at the national scale level that I wanted to share. And that's something we are hoping to work with more countries in Africa. You know, Addison, I want to come back to you just real quickly on this. I mean, you started us out with these variety of digital innovations that are, again, as Jane mentioned, fitting into various sectors. And now we're hearing that government is also a catalyst to this. In your research, uh, particularly when we try to bring in businesses in this digital transformation effort, are there local challenges, right, of folks being able to access capital, have the engineering expertise? I mean, talk to me a little bit about that, right? What are some of those barriers to sort of implementing these types of innovations that we're discussing? Right. So Jane and Yolanda mentioned some of the uh, uh, great policy measures being taken by governments and international development organizations. But I would say that digital technologies in Africa are actually flourishing in spite of lack of a supportive policy environment because not enough is being done 
Um, in fact, I can say even say that some of the most successful digital technologies in Africa are driven by the uh, inability of governments to provide basic public services. For example, the concept called uh, Uber for Tractors is an outcome of the lack of government initiatives to advance access to technologies to farmers. And the same can be said for many startups in health and education sectors as well. So recently I taught a course on green technologies for small African entrepreneurs. And I ran a short survey trying to find out the factors that are holding back entrepreneurs from adopting the latest technologies. So the, not surprisingly, perhaps the most important challenge is finance, followed by limited access to new technologies. So uh, because of limited uh, technological access, many African entrepreneurs actually tend to lag behind their counterparts in other parts of the world. So uh, the, the kinds of technologies in Africa are also kind of redeploying and re modeling existing technologies instead of um, uh, significantly new innovations. That's not necessarily a problem, but it tells you about the nature of the problem, the nature of the lack of policy support to enhance technology access in the continent. And uh, because of these African startups often struggle to compete with global platforms, the competition be between Uber and African startups that provide ride hailing services is a good example for that. And I think this creates a dilemma for governments. In a way, you have to choose between the consumers and the business. Banning or heavily taxing foreign platforms, such as Uber, would hurt, would hurt consumers. But at the same time, also a totally free market can also undermine the growth potential of the local startups. What I would say is needed is a kind of a balancing act between these competing policy goals. So uh, you would need a tailored and well-coordinated policy to support local digital enterprises. Uh, that have a greater chance of success without adopting wholesale protective policies that can close the door for uh, foreign firms. Because if you do that, I think uh, excessive protection can also undermine competition and technology transfer, which is uh, vital for a vibrant startup ecosystem. I love that. It's almost um, sounding like as to what we're dealing with entrepreneurship in the U.S. when it comes to entrepreneurs of color, right? That there are these barriers that stop them. And I love what you talked about you know, there's this replication of technologies, but the extent to which we actually have the deployment of new, right, technologies could be a barrier if we don't have the, the workforce, the talent pipeline. You know, Jane, I want to bring you in because I know you worked within government, right, uh, in Kenya, but you also follow these policy issues as well. So I want to give you an opportunity before we delve into the digital divide to sort of chime in as well. There's a lot of government interventions and a lot of uh, specific strategies and policies that are being driven by national policies and also intercontinental from the African Union and also from a regional perspective. So we are beginning to see targeted interventions by various levels of government that understand that we have to move beyond the barriers or some of the challenges that are there when it comes to the digital divide. And this is mostly because of the infrastructure and some of the issues that we'll discuss when we start talking about the socioeconomic factors. Policy has definitely been one of the greatest catalysts. I believe the continent, we are beginning to see a lot of policies that I imagine, even with a body like Smart Africa, where they have the digital economy blueprint, where they're setting the foundation of what the continent needs to do when it comes to adopting a digital economy. So I think on the policy side, there's, there's hope. It's now the implementation and also the investments and getting the political will and the partnerships that needs to drive this inclusively. 
You know, and that's such an interesting point because it also assumes, and again, very much like what we're seeing when it comes to access to capital and barriers to adoption for more vulnerable populations. When we start thinking about the digital divide, right? Because we have businesses, particularly our startups, who should be part of this digital transformation. And then we have people, right, in communities in certain countries on the continent that cannot benefit from access despite the high penetration of mobile access that is happening in Africa. Jane, talk to me about that because you and I are sisters by portfolio because this digital divide is global, right? It's not just something that happened during the pandemic, but it's something that's been ongoing. There's so many similarities that I imagine here, but what is dominant and what we continue to see is that the digital divide has the greatest impact in the African continent. It is the largest within the continent. The ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, just released a new report, and it shows that Africa is a continent with the largest population of people who do not access the internet. And why is this so persistent and why are we continuing to see this? There is the issue, the traditional issue that you cannot access a broadband. So for some reason, you do not have either a mobile signal or you don't have a fixed broadband coming to your house. This, however, we're beginning to know there's less of this happening because of all the infrastructure that is happening within the continent. What has begun to emerge is the growth of what we call the access gap. So a lot of the people who are no longer have access is because is they live within a mobile signal, but they can't afford it or they don't even probably have the digital skills. Other digital divides are also beginning to emerge is that there's a rural urban, which is traditional. Some of these are traditional um, issues that have marginalized people in the past are the ones that are beginning to have more consistent digital divides. So we see in Africa, for example, if you live in an, a rural area, you're 23% less than 64% for those who live in urban areas. Also the gender divide. A woman is less likely to access the internet more than male, that is at 34 and 45. But what is positive, and I think, Nicole, it's good that we highlight the issue of the youth, is that more youth are using the internet. 55% more than 36% of adults are using the internet in Africa. And so we are beginning to see the youth are the ones who are driving the digital transformation that is happening. The creative economy and gig economy is one where the youth have literally exploded in tapping in into the potential of the of technologies. We're seeing a lot of content creators coming and rising up in Africa, thanks to global brands like YouTube and TikTok. But we're also seeing some innovations that are happening within country like Viewsasa in Kenya, where whereby you create your own content and you're able to surface it on a platform and then also make meaningful living out of it. But going back to your digital divide question, we have serious issues that we need to look at, socioeconomic factors, the traditional issues of your income and how can you afford a device, how can you afford data and how can you be skilled and mostly how do you feel safe? So these are some of the prevalent issues that are continuing to drive this digital divide. And these are some of the policy areas and some of the research that we're trying to work on to see how can we impact policy with some of these non-traditional issues that are affecting those who are able to benefit from the digital divide. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. And Adesu and Yolanda, I want you to chime in if you want to add in. I mean, Yolanda, from your work at the UNDP, I'm sure you see this digital divide as Jane talked about, not just you know in communities and among young people, but also when we even look at women, right? I'm sure you've got more on the ground cases as well that can complement this. Sure, happy to chime in here. And I think Jane already mentioned about 37% women globally don't have internet access. That is much higher than men, which is at 31%. And then looking at 
Africa specifically, actually only 34% of female population in Africa are currently using the internet. So, so think about it. There is almost 70% of women are not using internet. They are not going to listen to our podcast. They're not going to use any of the platforms or the innovations that we're talking about here. That is still a very urgent issue that we need to address collectively. And then I wanted to share some of the things that we think digital access can help women across the continent. And there are different ways that can really benefit from the very basics that women in rural areas, once they get online, they can actually access the information that open up their world. And then they can give you really basic information from reproductive health and rights for from these online platforms. And then for those women in cities, they can really use the digital tools to connect with each other and share information. And if they want, they can even do a Uber equivalent driver and digital access can really help them also access financial and employment opportunities and give them access to education, to health services. And more encouragingly, we also start to see more women in the digital transformation space in the policymaking. And Jane, I think you're a great example by yourself. And we start seeing, for example, um, Minister Paul Ingebera in Rwanda. She has a great example of how women are taking up leadership and actually setting the policies for the digital transformation for African countries. So all of them are really encouraging. But still, we have a long way to go. We still have almost 70% of women, and we need to work together to address that. I'm going to have y'all back. I mean, I'm serious (laughs) because I want to keep going into these parallels of the African and U.S. divides and what that looks like, because I think it does have implications for persistent systemic inequalities that we see here in the U.S. and across the world, actually, when it affects people of color. But Addison, I want to kind of, you know, as we get ready to wrap up, sort of return to this question of the young people of the future. You're focusing your work on these digital platforms and in particular, again, across these sectors. Will the young people, the young entrepreneurs be the ones that are going to change the trajectory of technology adoption and use? Or do you see the technology adoption and use perhaps becoming a strong arm to their ability to do the type of creative activities that we need the continent to do? So, yeah, of course, the use have a significant potential for transforming African economy, I think, but that would uh, depend on the uh, level of support, economic policy support from governments and other actors as well. The problem is currently African policy making is often pretty much top down and mainly focusing on large companies and industrialization and etc. I think there is a need to reorient economic policy by focusing on startups, entrepreneurship and small businesses, especially in the uh, digital area. One of the things governments can do is, of course, improve access to finance, which is a major problem, perhaps in all parts of Africa. So uh, as I said earlier, there's a momentum recently of uh, venture capital inflow into the continent, and governments should build on that and try to increase even further the level of financial access. So in the first half of 2022, for example, more than 300 African startups were able to acquire venture capital funding, but that needs to be significantly higher if we are going to have a substantial uh, transformative impact. Uh, among other things governments can do, I would say, is partnering with large companies to attract both finance and know-how to the continent. There's already a good precedent to this. In recent years, large companies such as Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alibaba have also initiated uh, tech research and education programs in Africa. And I think this should be done at a much larger scale to enable many Africans to get access to vital technical skills. And also, 
governments and development partners should work together to provide all forms of technical and financial support for the expanding and vibrant startup landscape in Africa. I can mention a few examples here. Technical support for technology firms could be in the form of, for example, incubators and accelerated programs, uh, and also provide access to innovation hubs that enable startups to get affordable workspaces, but also to be able to connect with other entrepreneurs working on the same space as well. I think there, there's a lot to be done and there's no uh, lack of uh, knowledge of what should be done, but active work and investment is needed to make that happen. May I jump in here? I want to build on one of the points that Adisu has just mentioned. On the point that Adisu were talking about bringing or having the big tech companies investing more and engaging more, I think one of the caveat there is we do not want the big tech companies to come in and then take over the local ecosystem. I think it's very important to support and enable the local ecosystem. What I mean is the local innovators, local entrepreneurs, how do we build a local support ecosystem so that the environment itself is very enabling for them rather than it's only looking at external big tech giants coming and help them out. I think one of the things we really wanted to build is that the, the local population, the local policymakers are feeling enabled, empowered to really drive their own agenda. And I just want to build on that. That's not a saying the tech giants are not helpful and many of, the, many of them are doing great initiatives. I think Google had a big initiative around digital literacy in Africa, for example. So these are efforts that need to be complementary to the local efforts as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there has to be this, as I talk about my research, an engagement at the local level. You just can't have companies come in and impose their values, right? Their norms, the way that they do things without exactly. making it an inclusive and responsible environment. Jane, anything final to add as we get ready to wrap up? I, I, I could keep you all for a longer time. But I'm not <laughs> going to do that, right? But this has been completely fascinating and it's giving me life because this is an area that I've always wanted to talk about ever since I went to the State Department almost two decades ago and said, how come we don't have digital health in the United States? Why aren't we doing mobile banking? That's a whole other story, another podcast. I mean, what do you think? And first, I also want to say thank you, Yolanda. She made a very kind comment towards women, including myself. But I also want to uh, add on to what both uh, Yolanda and Lashitu have said when it comes to innovations. And, And in fact, the latter point about the big techs, we're beginning to see something that I would say is quite unfortunate because we want to build these innovations to grow up and to scale up. But what we are seeing mostly happening is when an innovator uh, who is a young, mostly these young people have a great idea, they have begun to scale up the innovation, they do run into financial issues or they run into some complications in the ecosystem. And that's why we want to build it. But what we're beginning to see is the big investors or big companies coming and buying out these uh, innovations. So we are having systemic issues that are leading to uh, innovations not really scaling up. And I think this is a point of concern, especially for a continent that really wants to grow the young people innovators and also that entire sectoral growth of innovations. So I think it's something that really needs a more concentrated and concerted effort by policymakers, community, the financiers, investors, and so forth. But from a general perspective, digital transformation continues to be 
a factor that can and transform the continent. It can transform young people, women, some of the issues that we are seeing. But we do need targeted interventions. And this can only be done inclusively, like Yolanda said, that it has to be by the government, the private sector, and also by researchers and scholars like us who are also able to influence some of the policies that go into developing this ecosystem. Listen, we have to come back and keep talking about this. Friends, you have been listening to Adesu, Jane, Yolanda, all experts in this area that are doing really magnificent things to bring more attention to this issue and to train people like myself who actually work in tech policy to really push the envelope on these global similarities that we really need to tend to. It's time to break some of those cycles. You know what, everybody? Thank you for coming. Thank you for bringing this knowledge. Thank you, Nicole. It was wonderful. Thank Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me as well. No, thank you all. This has been another episode, my friends, of the Tech Tank Podcast, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palpable bits, not bites. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I'm Nicole Turner-Lee co-host and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.